Hello and welcome to Kanan Rin's Sound of Play 97. Day and Sound of Play, we bring you some of our and your favorite pieces from the MIDI video game soundtracks we've enjoyed over the decades. Joining me, Ryan Heyman, in Sound of Play 97 is a uh, good friend of mine from college, actually. Um, he's uh, here in town for the weekend, and he's been listening to video game music for about as long as I have. So I figure why not invite his own sense of uh, 
expertise and different uh, different musical tastes onto the show as a friend of mine named Brody Stewart. Hello. Hi. So you are, uh, we've known each other for a few years now, probably like eight years or so, something like that. Um, anyways, you are now studying to be a, like a Catholic priest. Is that the appropriate, there's all sorts of terms for these like religious leaders that I don't know the difference of what, what is the, what is it that you're doing this? So you can just kind of briefly give our audience some context as to who you are. That's right. Catholic priesthood. It's probably not the most common choice of profession these days, <laughs> uh, but that's what I'm studying for. I've got five more years in the seminary before I come back and be ordained. Five years. That's like doctorate level work. <laughs> that's a that's a long time because you've already gone through regular college. I can attest to that because we lived together for most of it. Um but uh yeah that's uh that's that's a lot on your plate there. Five years. Um that's cool though. Do you get a lot of um when I think of like traditional Catholic music, I think of a lot of chanting. I think of a lot of like those large choirs reverberating off of stone walls and these kind of stained glass window, uh, amazing ornate, uh, churches. Is that the, uh, do you get a lot of that in your day to day life now? Well, my seminary is actually run by Benedictine monks. So yes, there is a lot of chanting in an ornate church. It's, uh, it's rather awesome. <laughs> that's pretty cool. That's, uh, not, not so bad, but anyways, that's not what we're here to talk about today necessarily, unless, uh, maybe some chanting will come up later. Who knows? Yes. Only time will tell, but as of right now, we've heard coming into the show a theme song from one of the Metal Gear Solid games. Now, I've played the Metal Gear Solid games in the past, but it was uh, at your request that I sit down and play them. And it was with, uh, with a lot of your help, actually, as I am uh, I'm very bad at these Metal Gear Solid games. I think we went through at least a couple of these together, and, um, and it was a lot more kind of bearable than me trying to struggle with the controls myself. But um, do you want to kind of give some context for the song that we listened to and introduce that? Yeah, this song was the main theme to Metal Gear Solid 2, which is not my favorite Metal Gear Solid game in the series, but it is uh, musically interesting. It's, uh, I think, a really good blend of symphonic and electronic music, which captures the the series, uh, the theme that they're going for really well. And when we were reading through some of the YouTube comments, one of them mentioned that he comes comes home every day from school to pop this disc into his PS2 and listen to this theme over and over again. And I'm like, that's what I did too. So it, it's really memorable from my childhood. And so you would just kind of leave this on in the background while you did other things. Um, this, this music just kind of accompanied you throughout the house. Not quite. I would just make sure to watch the intro video every time I played the game because the intro video was so cool to my, you know, teenage self. Oh, sure. I mean, even as an adult, this uh, this Kojima style of directing has always been very appealing to me. But um, yeah, it's a it's a great song. It's very heroic, very grand. Uh, it's it's always a always a treat to listen to. So that is the Metal Gear Solid main theme composed. Hmm potentially by Harry Gregson Williams, maybe plagiarized from an actual classical composer. Uh, this conversation has taken place on the Kane and Rins podcast in the past. If you want to go back to our um, Metal Gear Solid uh, issues, 
to hear a little bit more about that, but there is some controversy surrounding the authorship of this particular theme. And for that reason, the theme was left out of Metal Gear Solid 4. But um, yeah, you know, regardless, uh, some of the best and most memorable songs from video gaming history <laughs> have um, had kind of one foot in the door of plagiarism. I remember the uh, the Doom soundtrack for the original Doom uh, is a, a very memorable soundtrack, but is almost entirely uh, very blatant plagiarisms of uh, of thrash metal songs. And so um, when they did the, the new Doom uh, reboot, uh, they snuck in little references, but you can tell that they didn't want to lean on the kind of musical roots of the series just to just because now there's a lot more kind of legal liability <laughs> that they go to. But on the subject of Doom, we're going to go into something almost entirely the opposite. Uh, this is a very nice, relaxing track, one that I was surprised to um, hear had never been chosen on Sound of Play before because it's a very well-known track. It's one of those that you'll hear people learning when they're picking up a new instrument. They'll try to figure this one out on, you know, guitar or piano or whatever or... Uh, <laughs> yeah, not Freebird, but um, it's kind of an equally beloved track. This is um, called Dire Dire Docks by Koji Kondo from Super Mario 64. I've gone on record in the past to saying that I kind of had mixed feelings about the Super Mario 64 soundtrack. Uh, I didn't like it at the time that I played the game, but I think now that I've heard the songs kind of reorchestrated in uh, um, like some nice remixes in the Super Mario Galaxy games and uh, some of the Smash Bros. tunes. I, I really do like the songs themselves I've found over the years, uh, but I, I think I just really didn't like the instrument choices on the N64 version. And that kind of just put me off the whole like musical experience of the first game. I, I, I really didn't like those like those wah voices that they used in almost all of the songs and that like awful fiddle that they use for the um that slide level <laughs> uh but I, again that's all subjective and it's all just like to my ears those just aren't super pleasant sounds but even back then i i did really like dire dire docs and it always really stood out it's a very um kind of relaxing tune it's uh, it, it feels right at home with the like Donkey Kong Country underwater themes, um, kind of up on that level of quality. So, you know, whether or not it's one of the better songs in the soundtrack, it always stood out to me as being like really great, even back when I didn't like the soundtrack yet. <laughs> I do now, but back then I wasn't such a fan. Uh, now, Brody, have you spent a lot of time with Mario 64 growing up? I actually didn't have an N64 growing up. I stuck with the Super Nintendo much longer than most other people. So I only remember playing Super Mario 64 later in college, but uh, also whenever I would go to McDonald's when for whatever reason they still had N64s in McDonald's. That's right. And they had those like huge like plastic GameCube cabinets for a while as well. That was a weird development. But I guess Nintendo and McDonald's have always had some sort of a partnership because they um, McDonald's was like a 3DS street pass zone for a for a while. I don't remember how that all works, but yeah, I, I guess there's some sort of a friendship between, uh, you know, the house of Mario and the house of Ronald McDonald um, must be some sort of a, 
a a marriage between the families and, and a exchange of land at some point in their history. Uh, but anyways, we can speculate about uh, about Super Mario's fast food habits all day long later. But for now, let's listen to Dire Dire Docs, composed by Koji Kondo from Super Mario 64. Back with a request from the forum. This comes from the Green Flea, who says, "Once I saw the first trailer for Hyperlight Drifter, I knew I had to play it. It carried all the air of mystery and wonder that a Hayao Miyazaki film does. And then, when I finally got to play it, it delivered an excellent strategic brawler. Various weapons and upgrades help, but there's almost no place that you can run just swinging and win. You have to know your skill sheet and be able to move and attack when the openings occur." Very little story is conveyed, except through imagery, which leaves a lot of gaps for the player to fill in. 
I loved everything about the game. I've heard a lot of complaints on its difficulty, but I never found it to be especially hard, and even found the game very forgiving, where it responds you after untimely deaths. I've picked the sound from the trailer and the opening of the game, composed by Disasterpiece, as it articulates the tone of the game better than my words could ever do. So this is a piece called a vignette panacea. Is that the... <laughs> I assume so. Composed by Disasterpiece, who will remember from the Fez soundtrack as well, um, as well as doing uh, independent music and then music for, for movies and stuff as well. But yes, this comes from Hyperlight Drifter, one that I have not had a chance to play yet, but am, uh, have been intrigued ever since I saw it kind of hiding in the corner of the show floor on PAX one year uh, back in the indie mega booth. Just a real, um, real eye-catching game. Um, to be seen even from afar. Like the art style is very striking. The uh, game is very colorful. Music is, uh, is very nice as well. Brody, I know that you have, in the recent years, you've had to scale back your video gaming con- <laughs> consumption due to just being busy with school and chanting and such. Um, <laughs> but uh, this was one that you made time for, and it was one that you... Uh, we're, we're talking about for quite a while. Um, what was it about Hyper White Drifter that drew you in, that made you want to play it when there were, you know, so many other games that you had to pass by? Uh, the fact that it's an indie game, it's more bite-sized. It's not going to be a 100-hour time sink like a Legend of Zelda or a Skyrim or something like that. Um, but also the art style. The art style was that simple pixel graphics, but still with beautiful colors and particle effects. It was really... Uh, attractive just from watching the trailers um also what people have said about it 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 feels like a zelda game it looks like a zelda game there's lots of little secrets and this air of exploration all those things that kind of combined um this uh, aesthetic appeal with nostalgia for playing uh zelda games on the super nintendo i know that there was and the green flea in the write-up for the song did mention this as well, but there was a lot of controversy surrounding the difficulty level when the game first released. Um, they eventually scaled back the difficulty, I think giving more iframes during rolling and um, doubling the frame rate and I think being a little bit more forgiving with the health system. Uh, I don't remember exactly everything that they changed, but uh, they made it a little bit more forgiving overall. But I think you played before those changes went into place. Did you ever feel like it was too difficult or you wished it was easier or were you um, very happy with the way that it was, um, where the difficulty was paced? I actually played before and after the difficulty adjustment and I never found it to be particularly difficult to begin with. There were some optional areas that were rather punishingly difficult, but with any game like this, you just kind of ignore those or man up. Um, but after after they they fixed it, I think the the main thing that I thought was a really fair way to do that was to add those invincibility frames when you're rolling. Because if you're a good player, you don't really need to roll around to dodge everything. You just time your attacks and all that. But uh, if you're if you're a bad player, it is a bit more forgiving. So I think they handled it really well. But I don't I don't understand why it was so controversial. It didn't change a whole lot. All right. Well, let's listen to a piece from Hyperlight Drifter. Thank you. 
a nice track. Uh, so, uh, Brody, we, we lived together for three years, was it? I think we lived in the dorms for a year at least and lived um, off campus in a, in a home that we shared with another individual during college as well. Um, and yeah, it was just a real fun time. We had a lot of late nights of video games and uh, we did like rock band competitions at the school and uh, just all sorts of, of, of wacky adventures. And <laughs> um, But I, I remember when we were living in the dorms, you had brought your PlayStation 3, I believe, or at least brought your copy of uh, Demon Souls, which you were encouraging me to play. And I was kind of like, I don't know, it doesn't look that interesting. And so I, I finally kind of, you know, you, you kept on kind of bugging me at me about it because you said, Oh, it's really good. You should give it a try. The combat is really, uh, it's a nice system. And I was just kind of dragging my feet on that one. Uh, played it, just really hated it and sat it down and figured like, okay, whatever, this is just some sort of, I'm not going to, um, I, I don't have the time to learn how to play a game like this. <laughs> uh, and then years later, the like Dark Souls series ended up being like one of my favorites. And I, I still regret <laughs> not just muscling through it and learning the game. just like you're supposed to do. But um, that one does make a, a real strong <laughs> impression if you're not prepared for it going into it. Um, now, I think this was before the Dark Souls series really took off in popularity. Where was it that you came across Demon Souls? Wow, I don't even I don't even remember. I think I was just reading some review of it back then. I used to get those video game review magazines when they still existed. Do they still exist? Who knows? Yeah, I think well, they they still exist, but um, I think most of that uh, most of the review work has moved to the internet because you can get those kind of day in day of, but. Uh, there are still some publications that more kind of focus on stories and stuff. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was maybe like the official PlayStation magazine or something like that was raving about this this game. Uh, and so I decided, wow, that's I like fantasy. I like challenging games. So I decided to give it a shot. But I will say that I I could even myself never, <laughs> never beat it. It broke me um, late in the game. Well, because it actually broke as well. Like you, uh, your PlayStation broke or something like that, and you couldn't get your save file off because that game specifically was encrypted in such a way that you couldn't move it to another system. And I remember you being very frustrated that you couldn't continue your save of Demon Souls, and you had to, uh, you you were faced with the prospect of having to start over, and you basically just never went back to it. Uh, yeah, that happened eventually when I wanted to give it another go. But also, there was one point when I took a very long break before that because I had been saving up all of my souls to change <laughs> them in for upgrades, and then I died. And then, as you know, in that game, if you don't retrieve your souls before dying again, they're gone forever. And so I, I died again trying to retrieve all my souls. So I spent... Dozens of hours saving souls only to stupidly die twice in a row and lose oh. them. <laughs> it's horrible. Uh, but that's the uh, that's the way of the world. And we uh, we played a lot of Earth Defense Force together, uh, both 2017 and 2025. Um, those were some solid games. We had some adventures there. And we said Metal Gear. We did Metal Gear Rising together as well. Um, so just a lot of... Uh, a lot of fun video game memories. Played a lot of Just Cause 2 as well. Uh, we had our Xbox 360 set up in the main room with the vanilla Just Cause 2. And then we had on my computer a 
modded Just Cause 2 with all sorts of like AI tweaks and mods and stuff that made the world basically go crazy. And so we had these two very different experiences with the same game. And and also I remember we we ran through uh, Mass Effect 3 at the same time as one another and Skyrim and, as well. And so we had a few of these games that we just kind of like played in parallel and would like over dinner compare our experiences and would say, oh, I can't wait till you get to this point in the story. And um, while we're talking about this, this is a story that I've told before, but um, now that I have you in the hot seat, I want to bring this up again. Uh, Mass Effect 3. <laughs> <laughs> I played Mass Effect 3 in a very role-play way where I would answer each scenario the way that I would in real life, like the way that I think is the right way to approach each scenario and you know just do what i think is the right thing for the right point in time but um you went a little bit more kind of like i'm just going to choose paragon <laughs> and so we had very different experiences uh, and maybe that is <laughs> what you would do at any given point in time that might just reflect the fact that um i'm not the one studying to be a catholic priest now so <laughs> there was a point in the story of mass effect 3 and i'm not going to spoil anything but uh basically the the survival of an entire like species of two species well uh at the time <laughs> yeah that's true of uh two species of beings um of intelligent beings were kind of coming up against each other and you had to make a choice uh between them essentially like which one you're going to side with and uh and it implied that the opposite um the side that you didn't choose to side with was going to be uh, pretty much wiped out. And so it's a very weighty decision. And I really kind of, I remember just like pacing around the room thinking about that one, like, what do I want to do uh, with this decision? Cause it's so weighty, so intense. And so I, I made my choice. I did what I thought was right. And, you know, it led to a lot of you know, people that I'd come to really grow fond of over the years, uh, perishing in this awful war. Uh, and it was, it was heartbreaking, but then I was really interested to see how you would approach the situation because I, I don't know. I just, uh, it, it was an interesting point in my story. And like, I just want to kind of gather these stories and hear your perspective on it. And so I was so excited and you were a little bit behind me in the game because, uh, you have, um, uh, better balance over your life decisions than I do. Uh, and so <laughs> I think I got through the game a bit quicker than you did, <laughs> but, um, uh, you got to that point finally. And so I was really excited. I sat down and was like, all right, so tell me, what did you choose between these two races that were fighting for survival? And you said like, oh, I just chose the blue option that made them both happy. And then they all went home, like holding hands and everybody was fine. I was just like, no, that's, not an interesting story. Like, how can the game allow you to do that? Maybe you just weren't a very interesting leader. I uh, must be. I just, I was such a letdown <laughs> uh, that I had this moment. Um, but anyways, that's, that's Mass Effect for you. Do you remember that point in the story? Oh, I remember it well. I, I also remember, I think, uh, Ryan ended up killing the other race that survived that altercation <laughs> later in the game. So he, I managed to save uh, both. He managed to kill both. Yes, that is true. But I made, I made the right choice at two different points in time that ended up leading to a bad scenario overall. 
But I will say that I made the right choice at both of those points in time. Uh, that's like, uh, it doesn't, doesn't make it any better, but I don't know. I stand by my decisions, but yes, that was a, that was a tragic outcome. <laughs> uh, anyways, speaking of tragic outcomes, this next request from the forum comes from Spoopy Charlotte. That is from uh, Charlotte Cuts, who we, who we have had as a guest on the show before. Um, she requests a track from the, I don't even know how to describe it, d- dystopian, soul-wrenching, <laughs> Lisa the Painful. Uh, she says about it, Lisa the Painful is an extremely dark game, which deals with themes such as child abuse, drug addiction, and the eradication of females from the human species. You play as Brad, a, lo- a lovable loser. I said a losable lover. That could be equally true. Uh, with a terrible past who finds a baby. Given that this baby is female, in a world where there are apparently no females left, she is a rare commodity, and she goes to great lengths to protect her. He goes to great lengths to protect her, rather. Uh, learning to love her like a daughter. One day, this home is ransacked and the girl is stolen. Brad then goes off on an epic quest with a band of merry screw-ups to get this girl back in one piece. With a dark sense of humor and a corking soundtrack, not to mention the fact that this was developed by one guy using RPG Maker... Lisa the Painful simply doesn't get the credit it deserves. The soundtrack is one of my favorites, and I particularly like the song Summer Love. It stands out because of how relaxed it is, when a lot of other soundtrack tunes are quite manic. However, the peacefulness also underscores the fact that there's not much going on in this post-apocalyptic world except violence, and the men trapped there are just rotting away. Yes, this is Summer Love by Austin Jorgensen. Jorgensen. (laughs) I'd say, and this is um, from Lisa the Painful. I've seen it referred to as just Lisa or Lisa Lisa the Painful RPG as well. Yeah, this is uh, this came from 2014, kind of around the same point in time when uh, Undertale came out, and um, you know, just a couple of years before, uh, what is it, um, Stardew Valley, and all of these uh, kind of one man projects that are always so impressive. And this song I do really like. I wasn't all that uh, familiar with the soundtracks. I've not gotten around to playing the game. I own it on Steam. It's on my backlog, but I haven't played it before. And so I didn't really know what to expect from it musically. Um, But it's really interesting. It has this like nice kind of lo-fi quality about it. It has really weird kind of almost cartoonish sounds in it that I think lead to like a feeling of being dehydrated, wandering out in the sun, like the sense of not being fully about your wits, you know, just being a little bit out of your mind with hunger or dehydration or um, drugs or whatever it would be. But it's, it's an interesting one. Let's just go ahead and listen to Summer Love by Austin Jorgensen from Lisa the Painful.
Alright, Brody, we're coming back with another request of yours. Uh, before recording, we sat down and played some Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild. Uh, this was your first time playing the game, and you were just kind of experimenting with it, and I'm um, just kind of running around with the world and just seeing whatever you could find on my <laughs> already completed save file. So it wasn't like the most... Um, you were kind of running around with endgame materials and and stuff, so it wasn't the same experience that you would get if you were to start up a, a save all of your own. Um, but uh, I, I take it you you did still enjoy the game, and you seem to um, to really like uh, stumbling on a couple Koroks and kind of gliding about the world. What was your first impression of Breath of the Wild? Well, the first impression probably was that. I mean, we talked about it beforehand, but there's no soundtrack playing. There's no familiar Zelda themes uh, playing on the overworld or in, in certain areas. Uh, so that was kind of different. But the openness, the openness of the game really struck me. It, it reminded me of Wind Waker, which was my favorite Zelda game so far, because it's so open. You can go anywhere. You just look out on the horizon and you see sea, you see islands and say, I can go there and you sail there. And you discover new and interesting things while you're there. So it's a little bit intimidating, but it's also freeing because you know that you can go anywhere in the world. That's right. And this uh, this track that you've selected is from The Wind Waker. Um, this song, which is called Farewell Hyrule King, is composed by Kenta Nagata, Hajime Wakai, Toru Minigishi, and Koji Kondo in some combination um, as we mentioned in the past, sometimes with uh, Japanese games in particular, it can be difficult to tell who composed what because they're not um, always credited in the same way that a lot of Western games are with uh, kind of individual composers on songs. Um, but um, this is a is a very nice song and incorporates some uh, uh, some real intense, um, real rich piano playing as well as some themes from earlier Zelda games. Um, so I, I, I do really like this one, but uh, what is it about this song that makes it stand out and kind of when would you encounter this song in the game? You encounter this song at the very end of the game. Uh, I mean, I'm not going to give any spoilers, but um, it's it sets a nice tone for summarizing these nostalgic elements that we've all come to love, these these memorable Zelda themes, uh, but it represent represents them in a a somber melancholy way uh, at the end of the game after you've beaten the final boss. So I think it's like a really good cap after this intense moment. So it also brings back the underground theme from Zelda 1, which I have remarked in in the past and in at least one sound of play that that song doesn't get um, doesn't get enough of a uh, recognition past Zelda 1, which is unfortunate because I, I really like that tune. There was a little Easter egg. I think one of the, the bassists in a Zora band plays that theme in Majora's Mask, but I don't think it's really been like earnestly brought back for dungeons past Zelda 1. Um, and also I should mention there was a lovely reorchestration of it in the Legend of Zelda cartoon, uh, which is about the only good thing about that cartoon. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it does come back here. It's uh, really nice to hear that tune in the background. Uh, so let's listen to... Farewell Hyrule King from The Legend of Zelda The Wind Waker.
All right, this next song is a song, a theme song from a game on the Switch that I've been playing recently called Voez. And I've mentioned it before, but it's a really cool rhythm game. And that's kind of what I'm all about. <laughs> I'm finding like some of my favorite games from the past few years have been like a really kind of inventive rhythm games. I, I really loved Fantasia Music Evolved on the Xbox One Connect. And I've been really into rock band VR. And uh, Voez is interesting and cool in a way that I've never really seen before. Like it, it, it uses a lot of the setup of music games that we're familiar with now, but it remixes them in a way that makes it kind of fresh and interesting. It's a uh, it's a touchscreen only game, which is interesting on the Switch. It definitely, I mean, it was built for the iOS, but uh, since porting it to Switch, they didn't include any way to play it on the screen, and a lot of that is because the uh, it uses uh, kind of multiple tracks of um, kind of lines that move from the that run from the top of the screen to the bottom, and notes will go down those lines, and you hit them when they cross the line, just kind of the standard like Rock Band Guitar Hero setup, um, but these uh, these lines can can move around the screen. They can change color. They can kind of pulse with the music, and they can uh, they really kind of dance with the music that's happening. And it makes it feel really fresh and interesting. And um, you know, it's like a lot of rhythm games require a lot of concentration. Um, and so, you know, sometimes there's these really cool things that are happening on screen with like you know, Parappa the Rapper or Elite Beat Agents or Guitaru Man or even uh, Rock Band put on these amazing shows and just like really fun to watch for people in the crowds. But you, you're kind of trained when you get good at those games to phase a lot of that out and just focus on the button prompts. And so you end up kind of missing a whole aspect of the performance. Uh, and I think Voez does a good job of um, kind of navigating that by incorporating the kind of laser light show aspect of the performance into the way that the game works mechanically. And so, you know, it, it just feels very tactile to, you know, swipe one of the notes and then that sends one of the tracks that the notes are running down flying to the other end of the screen. And you have to, you know, switch hands to tap it with the other hand. And um, this is very involved, is very physical. And there's always something that's kind of fun and cool to look at um, on screen that doesn't distract from the game. You know, it feels like a Windows Media Player visualization, but it's like interactive and and it, it really works. I really like it. And I would uh, I would encourage people if they're not ready to, you know, put down the twenty five dollars that the uh, switch version costs to at least try out the free free to play. Anyways, uh, iOS version. And it cycles through songs that you can play for free on there. And then I think it has a stable of a few that, um, that you can always play for free. Um, but, you know, the, the Switch version does come with over 100 songs. And they're adding like 18 more for free in, uh, in June. And so I've, I've really enjoyed it. I um, unfortunately uh, cut myself pretty bad while I was cooking the other night. And I have a bandage around my finger right now, which means that I can't play the game because uh, the bandage gets in the way of my finger registering with the touchscreen. And so I have this really roundabout reason, but like, I'm really excited to heal up so I can play Voez again. 
uh, which is just the most like first world problem I could possibly have. But it's um, anyways, uh, this song is called Colorful Voice. It's is performed by Night Keepers. And this is the theme song from Boaz. This song starts up every time you um, start up the game. It, it plays over an intro cinematic. Uh, it also plays in the background of the menus. And it's a uh, playable level as well. Each level, each song, I should say, has three difficulty settings. And then each difficulty setting is kind of individually programmed. And so they each put on like a different kind of colorful light show in a way. And so, you know, there's just so much kind of replayability to these different levels. And this is just a, it's a nice song. It's one that I don't know if I like immediately got on with, but I think since I heard it so many times, it's just really kind of grown on me. And overall, it's just like a really pleasant, just really kind of sweet pop song. It's a very kind of light, airy guitar piece. Um, I don't know if I really have a lot more to say about it, but uh, otherwise, just um, check out Voez. It's it's super cool. And I'm always trying to hunt down these weird, neat, experimental music games. And I'm, I'm happy that I stumbled upon this one. So this is Colorful Voice by Night Keepers.
So, Brody, we talked a little bit about uh, music games back before the song, and uh, I, I know that we played a lot of Guitar Hero uh, and um, Rock Band especially back when we lived together. I remember you getting really good at Rock Band after I kind of wound down playing a little bit. I used to play all the time back in my first couple years of college, and then I kind of tried to uh, portion out my time and play some different games because I would just be on rock band like all the time otherwise. <laughs> but when I uh, when I stopped playing as much, you, I think, kind of quickly overtook me and you would like really kind of like practice down on some of those more difficult songs. Remember you playing uh, Freebird and 2112 and some of the ones with the real uh, tricky guitar solos. Um, do you uh, do you still get any rock band time in your life? Alas, no uh, video games as you've mentioned, are one of those things that you don't play as often in the seminary. But I do enjoy rock band when I get the chance to play it when I'm on break. I probably couldn't play Freebird anymore. But And while we were living together, I remember going through Rayman Origins for the first time. I don't think I ever convinced you to give that one a try. Um, but that was a particular favorite of mine. And the next request from the forum comes from uh, Colin Alonzo from the forum, who... Uh, says the Rayman Origins and Legends soundtracks have plenty of happy tunes, so I've picked one of the sillier pieces, Lucidor from Rayman Legends by Christoph Herall. Yes, this is Lucidor, composed by Christoph Herall and Billy Martin from Rayman Legends. And um, I've been replaying this game recently, and I just recently got the, uh, got um, past this boss again. And, oh gosh, this is just... It's such a gratifying game every time i go back to it like i don't think that i'll ever stop liking this game it feels so good to play its uh presentation is kind of unrivaled it's just really exciting and they do a a really one of the things that really stood out to me this time playing was how smooth the transitions between themes in these worlds are you know in in a lot of uh, platformers especially you have the snow world the lava world the factory world, the, you know, jungle world, whatever. Uh, whereas Rayman, like each world kind of has two themes that it really subtly kind of blends between as you go. It's very gradient all the way through. And even like within the level, it'll transition from being, for instance, like an underwater level to a James Bond pastiche like mid level and it just it makes it feel a lot more kind of organic these pieces really feel like they live together and um it's just it's really cool and really smart in a way that i've never seen handled as smoothly by one of these kind of mascot platformers before uh, this particular boss is from the end of the day of the dead slash dessert level <laughs> which is a weird combination. I don't know how to come up with them, but it, it incorporates a lot of the um, of Mexican tropes and a lot of uh, like baking and eating tropes as well. So yeah, it's, it's, it's wacky and weird, but I, I do really like this song. It, I always kind of wonder like, is it a little bit racist? Cause like it, it's very like stereotypical mariachi band fair, <laughs> but at the end of the day, like it's just such like a, pleasant tune and such like a cheery part of the game that it's hard to stay mad at it (laughs) like it's just it's it's a real delight 
the last Rayman game I played was oh many many years ago. I don't know PlayStation something. Was that the one of the uh, 3D ones or the first 2D Rayman um, Rayman game? Uh, this I believe was a 3D. I remember all I remember was a level where you're jumping up and the water is gradually rising. You have to keep going up and. Yeah, I was younger. Oh, that's right. Yeah, those uh, those are uniquely terrifying <laughs> in 3D platformers. I've been going through Unbox as well recently. And then um, Ukulele was not too long ago. I still need to finish that up. But I do like my 3D platformers. I don't think I'll ever stop liking those. But a good 2D platformer from time to time, and especially something that feels and looks as nice and sounds as nice as Rayman Legends or Rayman Lemons as we know it. And the Kane Rins team. Anyway, so let's listen to some music uh, from Rayman Lemons. This is Lucidor by Christopher Rall and Billy Martin. <laughs> tracks this next one is from a another 3d iteration of a 2d series kind of like the rayman games although uh, rayman did end up kind of reverting back to his 2d roots but um anyways that's that's very much beyond the point at this point so uh why don't you introduce this next song from metroid prime this is as ryan said from metroid prime the chozo artifact temple this is one of my uh 
more favorite songs from this game. I actually wanted to pick Vendrana Drifts before going through the backlog of what had been picked on the show, but one of you already picked Vendrana Drifts, so apparently you guys have good taste. But I think this song does a really good job of communicating this uh, lonely, desolate environment where there's still a lot of mystique. There's something important about the place, but you're alone in it and you have to discover that. And I think that's what the soundtrack of this series has really captured well. Yeah, you know, a lot of uh, video games and a lot of movie series are um, kind of touted for having a distinct musical identity. And we use that um, we use that term so much that like, it's almost kind of lost meaning uh you know you, you hear a uh that the john williams star wars type of music and you it definitely has like a star wars feel to it or you hear music from grant kirkhope music has that banjo kazooie feel to it and this kind of musical identity that kind of ties that entire project together but i i think for something like metroid prime this really does feel like distinctly different from any other type of music that I've really ever heard before. Like I think back to Metroid prime and like the music is a prominent part of my memory about these games. It's composed by Kenji Yamamoto. Yeah. It's just a really kind of incredible sound that they were able to get. And it felt really novel, really unique. I think the piece that always comes to mind first is those, um, those two tracks that play during the, uh, booting up the system and uh, the main menu, these weird kind of like cyber, like scratching and the gargles of like a dying uh, computer. It sounds like at the beginning that kind of tears into this uh, real neat kind of part organic, part digital screaming main tune, but, but still kind of maintaining a level of isolation, mysteriousness of otherworldliness and it feels like genuinely alien in a way that is like such a such a triumph of of, uh, of soundtrack, and it it imparts the personality of the game. I think more directly than anything else. Um, it's it's really wonderful, and this track is a little bit more kind of on the on the quieter side, which most of the soundtrack is. It's very kind of relaxing. Uh, very it makes you feel like you're in a place that's much bigger than you a place that has existed for years and will continue to exist almost like a benedictine monastery <laughs> that's right uh and so um where did this piece of music come from in the game or at least in your memory like what is uh when you hear this song what types of images and experiences does it kind of bring up for you um, I don't remember exactly where in the game it was. I I, I recall it being later, um, but throughout the course of the game, you're always discovering all this ancient Chozo technology and you're always uh, wondering where that came from and why the world is the way it is. And so as you progress in the game, you discover more of it. There's always this air of, um, like I said, mystique. There's something ancient here that you're you're rediscovering. You're, you're discovering a new area that's more um, Chozo in nature. All right. Well, this is the Chozo Artifact Temple by Kenji Yamamoto. This comes from Metroid Prime. Let's listen to some of that beautiful GameCube music.
We just have one track left to play today, but um, before we listen to that, remember you can venture over to our forum at canonrinse.com slash forum. You can get in touch with us on Twitter or Facebook. You can request tracks on uh, any of those places, and we will play those in an up- upcoming show. I always like to include a selection of those. Um, please do remember to subscribe to Sound of Play on iTunes and, re- and leave us a review or rating. That does help us move up the charts. Um, as uh, Apple's algorithms determine that more people are interacting with the pod, not just listening to it, um, but actually kind of contributing to our uh, writing reviews and, and such. It uh, it does elevate it and get it inside of uh, more people's ears. We like to share our music with as broad an audience as we can. I would like to thank Brody for joining me today, as well as our con- community contributors. Let's listen to a final piece of music here. Uh, this next song is from a uh, game that I don't like, but the theme song is so good that like, uh, I just had to feature it. <laughs> uh, this is from uh, Fallout 4. This is the main theme written by Enon, Inon, Zer. And maybe some other classical composer. <laughs> no, I don't think that this one is, uh, is plagiarized, but you never know. You never know these days. But this is, yes, of course, the Fallout 4 main theme. This was played in all the trailers, and uh, it plays over the press start screen. I don't know what to call it, the splash screen, I guess. <laughs> Which is just this really neat, really kind of beautifully composed desert scene with this with this garage in the middle of this desert and a uh, one of those mech suits inside, and it looks like it's being like worked on or repaired or enhanced in some way. But it's just this like still scene, and the camera just kind of pans around this. Um, around this, this workbench area and focuses on all the tools and the robots. And um, it's just, it's very peaceful, but it features all this kind of like wartime tech and weaponry. And it's, uh, it, it just sets like a really nice tone and a really nice mood for the game, which these, um, these splash screens really should. And um, I, I just really like that. Uh, I also used this song as the basis of a, a kind of a remix that I did for the end of the year show, uh, the 2015 end of the year show for the main Canonman's podcast, uh, where I mixed a whole bunch of themes from all sorts of the different uh, games that came out in 2015. Uh, since then, I have kind of reinforced that remix with uh, with some video clips from all these different games. And so it's created this neat little like 2015 video game music video in a way. I have that hosted on my own personal uh, YouTube page. I'll probably link to it in the show notes or something. Uh, so you can watch that if you if you choose to. Um, so we, whenever I hear this song, I always hear the like video game quotes that I put over it in the remix just because I listened to that so much while I was making it and um, since when I was editing the video. Uh, but it is just on its own, like a really powerful, really nice tune. Um, it's it's one that that definitely kind of builds over time into this really kind of triumphant main riff. Uh, but just those opening notes um, when it kicks into the the main theme, there's a little bit of kind of introductory stuff that is kind of perfunctory. But when it kicks into the main theme and it just it hits those opening like two or three notes on the piano. It's just, it's really powerful and it really has a, a strong sense of gravity. Was this a, a, a game series that you spent a lot of time with? 
The series, not so much, but Fallout 3 I spent a fair number of hours on. It's one of those, I guess it's a theme. I like exploring these worlds that uh, you want to try to find out what happened in the world, why it's mysterious, you want to understand all the secrets. It's any game that's like that, like Fallout, like The Legend of Zelda, like Metroid Prime, they all kind of tug at me and, and make me want to play them and explore them. Yeah, I do like that. And it's just fun to have that kind of old-timey, 50s music on the radio as you're moving around the commonwealth or whatever each of these um maps is called uh i i I do also like (laughs) this is a bit silly but um when you play the radio it doesn't affect the like stealth in the game so you could be sneaking in the middle of this enemy camp just kind of blaring these old like old timey tunes from your wrist radio and they'll be none the wiser it's kind of like in the last of us how um how all of your your companion characters could run around the enemies and they'd never be noticed because that would be kind of uh, unfair and not fun for the player if the uh, AI kept getting them in trouble. Um, but yeah, I just like all these little kind of immersion-breaking things. The more serious a world takes itself, the more fun it is to break. I think Bethesda games, especially <laughs> uh, the Elder Scrolls and Fallout series, have a uh, long and proud history of being thoroughly broken. <laughs> um, it's kind of hard to picture the uh, uh, Skyrim without ridiculous mods any longer. Uh, but anyways, that's, that's not what we're here to, uh, to talk about. Um, this Let's just play ourselves out with the Fallout 4 main theme. And uh, thank you for joining us. We will see you next week. <laughs>